Good morning, Bethel. Yeah, it's been a really, really, really good morning, and um, excited for what God has in store for us still yet. We're um, going to hear from Tom Steller as he preaches God's word to us here in just a minute. And if you weren't here Friday night, I want to just introduce him again briefly. Uh, he's from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He and his wife Julie are the happy parents of six children, um, youngest of whom is 17. And they have four grandkids as well. He serves as the pastor of leadership development there at the church. And also the church has now a college and seminary, Bethlehem College and Seminary. And he serves as a dean there and also does some teaching um, as well. Tom's been on staff at Bethlehem since 1982. And he's worn a lot of hats over those years. And a number of them have been directly involved in helping steward the explosion of missions, zeal, and activity that Bethlehem has experienced over the last 30 years or so. For instance, uh, the missions team met with him yesterday afternoon, and he mentioned um, in the mid-'80s, when things were really starting to take off, they prayed for 90 by 90 to send people short-term and long-term um, by 1990. And when 1990 rolled around, they had sent 134 people. So, okay, Lord, what's the next prayer goal? Um, 2000's coming up. Wait a second, that would be too audacious to pray for 2,000 by 2,000 to send that many people out, but they felt like they should at least pray um, along those lines. And tongue-in-cheek, he said they failed miserably by sending 1,436 people, church planting, pastors, missionaries, um, so a lot of different sending, but that many people sent by 2,000. Right now, they have 140 people in their missionary nurture program. So the point of saying all those things is not to, to put a church on a pedestal. Um, the point is that God did that, and he is doing that, and he's raised up Bethlehem as a pace-setting church in the cause of God's global glory and the completion of the Great Commission that Jesus gave to us. And so we as a church and many of us as individuals have benefited in the past from God's blessing on them, and we get to benefit more from it again this weekend um, the purpose of Bethlehem is to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. And that vision has been trumpeted by means of John Piper's writing and speaking ministry, but that vision has been implemented and invested in the lives of so many faithful men and women over the years through Bethlehem's training and sending. And our speaker, Tom Steller, has quietly, faithfully been at the center of it for over three decades. So we're grateful to have him here with us this morning to minister God's word. The text that he's going to be um, preaching this morning is Matthew 25, verses 40 to 14 to 30. So if you wouldn't mind turning in your Bible, I'm going to read that passage and pray, and then we'll have Tom come up and share with us. So if you... Are using the Pew Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the Pew, and you can turn to page 831, I'm sorry, 830, 30 and 31, and follow along there. And if you wouldn't mind, as is our custom, if you would stand with me in honor of God's word. <clears throat> so this is, in some sense, is a continuation of the previous parable, so it begins with, for it will be like, the it is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus speaking. For the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey 
who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. You may be seated. It is a pleasure to be with you. And when I say that, it's not just a polite way to begin. I really feel the pleasure. I mean, how can you not feel the pleasure when you stay for three days with, with Bill and Barbara in their home? And how can I not feel the pleasure when I spend time with this missions team who have poured so much energy and so much prayer and thought into this weekend as a little piece of a much bigger mission of the church? And how can I but feel God's pleasure to spend time with Pastor Chris, um, who I feel indebted to because he, years ago, poured his life invested his life into some young men who are now the leaders of our college and seminary. And uh, it's an amazing thing to watch this investment just pay dividends again and again and again. And then to feel the pleasure this morning on, of just worshiping with you and hearing your partners speak um, there's, God is stirring in this congregation, 
and, uh, and it's an exciting place to be, and I, I'm just excited for your future as a mission-invested church. So, we are on, uh, let's see here for a moment, we are looking at the key text um, that inspired the, the theme of the missions conference, and I've heard my sermon preached many times through this weekend already. And uh, so I rejoice in that and uh, just consider this some reinforcement of what you've already heard. And so let's look together at this great parable. In the parable that was just read, Jesus paints us a picture of a master who goes on a journey and entrusts some of his resources to three of his servants. And of course, the master represents Jesus, and the servants represent us, you and me. And I want to share a few observations of this text. Number one, the master decides who gets what resources. He gives to one servant five talents. He gives to another servant two talents, and he gives to another servant one talent. Verse 15 says he did that according to their ability, and I don't think it means according to what they deserved. I think it's just an acknowledgement that we all have different capacities. We're all wired up differently, and that's just the way it is in the kingdom of God, and God delights in the diversity of his people. He delights in the diversity of the body of Christ, and he delights in the diversity of the peoples of the world to refract his image and his glory um, throughout the universe. Third observation is that the master expects each servant to invest the resources entrusted to his care, to invest them, and he will hold them accountable for how these servants invested the resources. When you hear the word talent, five talents, two talents, one talent, don't think, first of all, of the TV show, America's Got Talent, okay? Or The Voice, or American Idol. I kind of like those shows. I love to see talent on display. It really is an amazing thing. And uh, the word talent here in the context is an amount of money, or I should say the weight of the silver that represents an amount of money. That's what the original meaning of the talent was. I think it Etymologically, it flows into our word talent, and there is lots of parallels and, and overflow into that. But uh, in the New Testament times, a talent of silver weighed about 50 to 80 pounds. I heard different things. 50 to 80 pounds of silver. And it was worth 6,000 denarii, which in the word denarii might be meaningless, to most of you, unless you've read the Bible enough and you've seen that word and wondered what it means. 
a denarii, or I should say a denarius, that's the singular of denarii, a denarii um, was a day's wage. And so, when you think of that, five tal- one talent is 6,000 denarii. One talent is 6,000 um, uh, days of work. All of a sudden you realize the proportion he's talking about. So put in today, today's economy, a talent was probably equivalent to, say, $7.50 an hour for a day worker or something, um, about $350,000, if my math is right. And I make no guarantee at all that it is. <laughs> so I encourage you to go home and do your own math, Okay. But it is, it's, it's, it's a big amount of money. One talent, $350,000. So when he gives out differing numbers of talents to the three servants, we shouldn't feel like he's not being fair to the servant who only got one talent. He was entrusted with a third of a million dollars. And the servant who got two talents was entrusted with about $700,000. And the servant who received five talents was entrusted with almost two million dollars. So, each one got a hefty chunk of change. The master made his determination in a tailor-made kind of way for each of the servants. And uh, we can learn from this that each person has a unique capacity and is only responsible for what he or she is entrusted with. So let's quit comparing ourselves with the superstars that are around us. And let us simply be faithful with what has been entrusted to us. It's so easy for us to compare ourselves with each other. And uh, it doesn't help. The the point is, be faithful with what God has given you. And uh, in my mind, when I see someone being faithful with what God has given to them, no matter what their capacity is, they are a superstar in my mind. Someone to be celebrated to the glory of God. So, The next thing to note is that the master goes away now after he has made this investment in these three servants. The master now goes away on a long journey. And in the context of Matthew, what Jesus is doing is that he is preparing his servants how to function between the time of his death and resurrection and ascension between that time and the time of his second coming, his return. And I want to take a moment to emphasize something that for you, maybe you've thought about his second coming so many times. But I just wonder if there are any, any people here that were like me when I was a brand new Christian, 
I remember the first time I heard that Jesus was coming back. And uh, I grew up in a church that was liturgical, and I'm sure I've heard it in the church liturgy, but it was like water off a duck's back. It never sunk in. But then when I was 17 years old, Christ opened my eyes to see his glory, and I, my life was changed. I accepted his gift of eternal life, purchased by his cross, guaranteed by his resurrection. And, but I never really heard about the second coming until one day at school, um, Becky Farrell came by, and she was a real tall girl and a classmate of mine, and she came um, into the library and was all excited because she was holding the, 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 the newspaper she was carrying, and she said, did you hear about the earthquake yesterday? And I didn't understand why anybody was so excited about an earthquake. And, uh, and, and I, I said, yeah, I think I heard about it on the news. And well, she said, that means Jesus is coming back soon. And, uh, and she kind of saw this perplexed look on my face. And she said to me, you have heard that Jesus is coming back, haven't you? And she was kind of intimidating. And I, I kind of said yes, but inside I was trying to think, I don't know if I really have. And so she took me into the study room in the library. And she opened up her Bible and pulled out this amazing chart and she began to proceed, she proceeded to tell me um, about Jesus coming back and all that's going to happen between now and then. She had it all figured out. And I was mesmerized that Jesus was coming back. But I also got a little distracted because I went home and I decided to study about the second coming of Christ and I read every book I could, put my hands on, and... Uh, and I became so excited about the signs of the times and all this trying to predict it. And, and, uh, but I think I missed the point. The big point was the Master is coming back. He's returning. And, uh, and what I've learned since then is he's not trying to get us to predict the moment of his return. And in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse that, that Tyler preached on, you know, the disciples were all excited and they said, tell us, Jesus, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then he said, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and all these kinds of things. But he said, those are just birth pangs. The end is not yet. And then he said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. In other words, between the time of my departure, which was just around the corner, and my return, which may be a long journey, I want you to be riveted on the main event, the main agenda. And we learned what that main agenda was last week with the Great Commission, that we are to follow Jesus and to obey his command to make disciples of all the nations.
Similar thing in Acts chapter 1. After Jesus rose from the dead, and it says that he appeared to the apostles over a period of 40 days, giving them many evidences of his resurrection. If you're not a believer in Jesus yet, I just want you to realize that we believe in a historical Jesus who we think the evidence proves that he rose from the dead, verifying who he was and what he accomplished. It's not just pie in the sky. It's not just some philosophy. God invaded this earth in the person of Jesus Christ in real time, in real space, in real historical events. And Acts chapter 1 says that he went about for 40 days giving evidence of his resurrection and, and uh, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And he said, and then the disciples came up to him with the same question, Jesus, is this the time now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, the consummation. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's our agenda as the church of Jesus Christ is to so love the Lord Jesus Christ and so worship him that out of this worship flows a passion to draw other people into the enjoyment of Jesus, the Son of God. So, just wanted to take a little parenthetical moment to say Jesus is coming back. He is returning. Now back to the point of the parable. The context of the parable is Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God and the return of the king. And uh, it's going to be sudden, and it's going to be something that we need to be prepared for. So I heard someone say just recently, maybe it was Bill, I can't remember who it was, but someone said, um, live as if he's coming back today. Be ready. Live soberly as if he's coming back today and you're going to stand before Christ today. And you don't want him finding you immersed in the fleeting pleasures of sin. You want him finding you resting in him, loving him, trusting him, enjoying him, enjoying his gifts, enjoying his people, enjoying his mission. So live as if he's coming back today but plan as though he might not be back for another hundred years. In other words, live your life wisely and live it with kingdom priority, and I think that's good advice. We learn from Matthew 24, 14 that between the first coming of the king and the promised second coming of the king, something must happen for him to return, this great condition Namely, that the gospel of the kingdom must be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Not in terms necessarily of all the 240 plus geopolitical countries, but all the nations in terms of ethno-linguistic groupings of people. So when you hear the term all the nations, or the nations in the Bible, 
don't just think of country. Think of people. Cameroon is one country in the United Nations, but there's 278-plus ethno-linguistic groupings of people, each with their own culture, their own language, each needing to hear the gospel in terms that they can understand and embrace. And so let that radically transform the way you read the Bible. But the condition is guaranteed. Jesus says, this gospel will be preached. It will happen as a testimony to all the nations. It will happen. It's guaranteed by Jesus. And yet, the fact that Jesus guarantees that it will happen does not keep Jesus from commissioning his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, that you, this is his last command, our first concern. His last command before he ascends into glory, he says, um, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then he gives the promise, and lo, I am with you always. So, all of his disciples, every one of us in some way has the pleasure to be involved in what's going to happen because Jesus purchased people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And Revelation says that when we get to get into the, the heavenlies and, and the, the curtain is taken away, we're going to see gathered around the throne worshipers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So if you want to be on the winning team, don't necessarily line yourself up with the Minnesota Twins or the Minnesota Vikings or the Philadelphia Eagles or the Philadelphia Phillies or any human team. But line yourself up with God's agenda and you will be on the winning team. Don't fear that you feel bad that you've never won the lottery. In fact, don't bother with the lottery. It's amazing. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, it says he's known you before the foundation of the world, and your destiny is to be conformed to the image of his son forever and ever, and to spend eternity with God in the company of his saints, in the new heavens and the new earth, with new bodies and renewed minds. And uh, it is fantastic. The future is so bright. But all the way until then, we have a mission. So, today's parable about the talents is sandwiched in between two other parables. First, the parable of the ten virgins. Remember that? Five of whom were ready for the master to return, and five were not. And only those five who were prepared were saved. The rest were locked out, were lost. Then the parable immediately after the parable of the talents is a parable about the separation of the sheep and the goats. The goats' lives did not show their love for Christ. They were excluded. The sheep 
showed their love for Christ by how they cared in just the nitty-gritty of everyday life for the poor and the oppressed and the lost. And they gave evidence that they loved the king and they were saved. Not because of their good works, but it was just evidence that their faith in Jesus was real. Our parable this morning shows that the master expects to use the expects us to use the life and the resources and the skills that he entrusts us to serve his cause. The servant who was entrusted with the five talents and the servant who was entrusted with the two talents were both equally pleasing to the master. And you can see that because he commends both of them exactly the same way. Well done, good and faithful servant. I've entrusted you with a little. I'm going to, and you were faithful. And uh, now I want you to be entrusted with much, and I want you to enter into the joy of your master. He says that to both slaves. But a servant who received the one talent, which was about a third of a million dollars in today's economy, Jesus said, that one was slothful and lazy. You wicked servant. Slothful and lazy. I don't want to hear that from Jesus. When the master called him to give an account, he showed that he didn't really know or trust the master. His excuse for just burying the talent was, Master, I knew you to be a a hard man. Reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And so I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. This servant did not know the master. He misunderstood the master. He had believed lies about the master. And his life presented the master in a way that contradicted the true nature of the master. And we all need to ask ourselves from time to time, does our life um, blaspheme God sometimes? I think every time we sin, what we're doing is we're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And we're worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And so all of us battle with this. Is the way you are living when you're not in church bringing dishonor to his name? I shudder for you. Even as I shudder for myself when my life is not consistent with what I say I believe. But God in his grace grants us repentance, doesn't he? And, and we get corrected multiple times every day, don't we? And so don't let your mishaps and your sins, even as serious as they are, they are blasphemy against the living God. But don't let the devil shout into you and say, you can't be forgiven of that. And he's the accuser of the brethren. And he says, there's no hope for you. You did this, you did that. 
And we just say, in Jesus' name, I stand against you, evil one, liar, father of lies. Jesus Christ has forgiven me for my sins, all my sins, past, present, and future, because of his cross. And he has given me the cloak of righteousness, the gift of righteousness, so that when the Father looks on me, he doesn't reject me. He accepts me. And, uh, and so that's how we fight. But if we're truly born again, we do want to please the Master. Not because we earn something from him, but because his pathway is the pathway to truest joy forever and ever. And when I think about how I want to invest my life and how I encourage you to invest your lives, there is no greater pleasure than to walk the path that God has laid out for you. To be sure it is a path that is going to be filled with trouble. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat the Christian life as though it were easy, as though it were just health, wealth, prosperity. Jesus says, in the world, in me you'll have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. You will have trouble. He promises it. But then he commands, but be of good cheer. And he gives a reason, because I have conquered the world. Our God reigns. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, each day has enough trouble of its own. So don't be surprised if your life is full of trouble. Don't let that be an indication that God isn't for you. But he meets us in the trouble. And he transforms the trouble. He helps us through the trouble. One day he's going to take all troubles away forever and ever and ever. And until then, we just, we just plod in the power of the Holy Spirit one step at a time, and at our, the center of our lives is seeking first the kingdom of God. And there's pleasure, unthinkable, unbelievable pleasure in that. So, let's look at the two other servants. They did not share the opinion of the third servant when it came to the master. Remember, the, the third servant said, no, the master is, is um, hard, and uh, he's, he's unjust. He reaps where he doesn't sow. He's not fair. He, he gathers where you, he, you scatter no seed, and he's someone to be afraid of in the worst possible way, not the holy, wonderful fear of God. That's what the third servant, but the, the first two servants, they didn't share that opinion. Their view of the master was entirely different. The response they received from the master was, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I will sit you over much, enter into the joy of your master. They knew that the gospel of the kingdom, which Matthew talks about in the previous chapter, throughout his whole gospel was good news of great joy. They knew that. Good news of great joy. Remember, that's the, what the angel said to these shepherds in the hills. You know, and uh, he said, fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy. Good news is gospel of great joy. 
And I just want to reflect for a moment on that phrase, the gospel of the kingdom that Matthew 24, 14 talks about. The gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom is good news. And, uh, and, and I think it was Tyler, or Tyler or Chris said that when you think of kingdom, you think of the reign of God. You don't necessarily think of a place so much. You think of the reign of God. And I think this idea of the kingdom of God is rooted in the Old Testament. And one of the, the verses that I think informed Jesus was Isaiah 52, 7 where it says, this very familiar ver verse to us, where it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who publishes peace, who brings good news. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So when you think of the sovereignty of God, don't think of it as some scary doctrine that you don't understand fully yet. But it is the good news of great joy that our sovereign God reigns. And He manifests that reign in a spectacular preeminent way through his son Jesus Christ who came to establish the kingdom in an official capacity through his, his life, his preaching, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father's right hand where he sits the Father's right hand and somehow by our faith in him we too are seated with him at the Father's right hand and he is going to come back and he is going to consummate his kingdom and he is going to set up the new heavens and the new earth where he will reign forever and ever somehow we reign with him I mean it, the picture is utterly spectacular and these two servants knew it and so when they received the charge from the king and receive the talents from the king to invest his resources into his purpose, into his kingdom, they said, wow, what a privilege. What a gift to be given such a holy, wonderful charge. Even though they were just servants. They were Servants. Most of the Roman Empire were servants. They were slaves. And you just look at the commands that God gives to the servants in the Scripture and how He tells them to go about doing their work. Do it with goodwill. Do it not as men-pleasers, but, but do it wholeheartedly. Um, do it with good pleasure. Why? Because we are united with the King of the universe. And He is on mission. And that mission has reached you. He's caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of His Son. Wow! He's done that. And now He invites you to join Him in this rescue operation and to align yourself with Him and to labor for His kingdom every day of your life, to invest yourself 
for the kingdom of God. And uh, that is good news. Um, and uh, so, enter into the joy of your master. You think of God as a God that is joyful. God is a happy God. You're right, he is angry at sin. But he is a sovereignly happy God. The fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What was the Father doing before the foundation of the world? He was loving the Son. You see that in John's Gospel. The Son is loving the Father. And this mutual admiration society, this delightful fellowship with the esprit de corps called the Holy Spirit is equally God in every way. God was not lonely when he made the world. He was not needy when he made the world. He made the world because he wanted to overflow his joy into centers of consciousness, into image bearers of himself who are wired up, and this is the one transcultural reality that every one of us throughout the world, whatever culture, is made in the image of God, which means we have a capacity for joy and a yearning for a joy that only God can ultimately give. It's in His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our world is lost in the pursuit of fleeting pleasures, pleasures that don't satisfy laboring for bread that spoils. And so, beloved, as we go out from this missions conference, let Jesus' words ring true. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And everything you need is going to be supplied. And you can enjoy the things he supplies. This is, you can enjoy the love of a spouse. You can, you can rejoice in sexuality in, in the marriage covenant. You can rejoice in the provision of a home and, and a job and all these things, but you see them as gifts of Him. But all of it is to be seen in the kingdom context, and that's where fullness of joy is to be found. So let me pray. Father, I praise You that You have broken into our lives and you have delivered us from the misery of feeling alone in the universe, feeling cut off and feeling alienated, and from being lost and being stuck in our sins. And you have begun a good work in us through our new birth, and you are can continue that work until we are conformed to the image of Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that we will manifest Jesus this week, um, both near and far, both in our neighbors and in, in cross-cultural situations of the peoples that you've surrounded us with in our communities. And some, Lord, you are inspiring to go to the ends of the earth. And I just pray that this church, Lord, will be filled with goers who go for the sake of the name and senders who send in a manner worthy of God that you might receive the glory and that your kingdom might come in all of its fullness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.